Well, here we are again, loved ones, in our series on the ABCs of Reformed Theology. And last week, if you remember, we looked at P is for providence, so God's everywhere, uh, power and presence, whereby he upholds and governs all things according to his eternal decree in eternity past. Uh, in that way, making sure that all is done according to that perfect plan of his, and no detail. Uh, is left outside of his plan. All is part of it, and he's orchestrating all things together for our good and for his glory in Christ. And I mentioned this morning that uh, I couldn't think of a topic that starts with Q to follow after P, but fortunately, Nathaniel Belden and Nikki uh, helped me out, and they gave me a word to help me fill it in, and so made a last-minute change to the title, and so Q and R stand for quiddity of the resurrection and renewal. And quiddity means the essence or whatness of the resurrection and renewal. So we're, we're trying to figure out a way to make sure that we hit all those letters there. But we're primarily, primarily looking at the resurrection and renewal tonight. And so we'll be looking at Belgic Confession of Faith, Article 37, not the whole thing, just a portion of it. Now, at the bottom of the first paragraph, we'll start with that last sentence of the first paragraph, and I'll read from there, that he, that is God, will burn this old world in fire and flame in order to cleanse it. Then all human creatures will appear in person before that great judge, men, women, and children who have lived from the beginning until the end of the world, and they will be summoned there by the voice of the archangel by the sound of the divine trumpet, for all those who die before that time will be raised from the earth, their spirits being joined and united with their own bodies in which they lived. So it is a resurrection of their bodies. And as for those who are still alive when Christ returns, right, they will not die like the others, but will be changed in the twinkling of an eye from corruptible to incorruptible. And we'll end there as we look at resurrection and renewal. But first, let's start with a question. What was the goal of salvation that Jesus accomplished and fulfilled? You know, most of us are used to answering that question in this way, or most Christians think of it in this way, the rescue of human souls from this world in order to go to heaven. But that is somewhat problematic. Such an idea, this idea of a soulish kind of rescue from the material world to be kind of in a heavenly realm, fits more with Greek Platonism, so ancient Greek philosophy, than it does with Judaism or with ancient Christianity or Orthodox Christianity. The philosopher Plato argued and, and had this idea that all physical matter, including our bodies and creation itself, is dirty and bad. And so according to Plato and those who followed his line of thinking, the goal of the soul is to be liberated from the prison house of the soul, which he would call the body, and to enter into this kind of spiritual environment or sphere, which is anti-material, not, not material, not tangible. And sadly, that Greek philosophy, as taught by Plato and many others, kind of really infiltrated into the Christian church and has, for many years, dominated a lot of the, the thinking, the mentality of Christians throughout the ages. But it really was, that kind of thinking, a departure from the Jewish roots of Christianity, from Christianity itself and the Bible, as it teaches, the goal of salvation. 
And so to answer that question, what is the ultimate goal of salvation, we have to really start back in Genesis 1, in the creation account, where we find God there, the, the king of the universe, rejoicing over every part of his creation, day after day, exclaiming with joy, it is good, six times. In Hebrew, it is tov, 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 tov me'od in the, in the last day. Very good, very good. And then on the seventh day, God finally rests within his completed creation. And the point is that God had formed all of his creation to be his abode, his dwelling place, his home with humanity. So from the very first page of the Bible, we see that God intended to dwell with humanity, to, to live with us within our worlds, in this material world. In the Garden of Eden, with all of its plants and animals and earth itself, it was his temple, palace, his abode. Heaven and earth were, in that sense, combined together in that place. And there's no hint in the text at all that Adam uh, was going to leave that paradise one day and to leave all of that behind to enter into some kind of heavenly environment. There's no hint of that at all. Rather, the logical conclusion as we study the text is that Adam had the vocation, the calling from God to extend the borders of the Garden of Eden to the ends of the earth, filling all of creation with the glory of God and extending its order and beauty over all things where God himself would dwell with mankind. But of course, instead of fulfilling that task that was set before him, Adam rose up in rebellion against his creator, an insurrection against the king of creation. And of course, the consequence was paradise lost. Not only humanity lost in our sin and misery, but all of creation fell with Adam. Because Adam was set up as the king, kind of over creation. And so his fall resulted in the curse that extended over all of the created order. And as, as uh, we read in Genesis 3, God expels Adam and Eve, exiling them out of the garden to live east of Eden in the desert of this world. No longer in a lush, vibrant place, of, uh, a garden where life is, but rather now in a desert, kind of a death. And now the creation that was once tov me'od, very good, is broken and polluted with sin and under the dominion of corruption. And so in Adam we sinned, and in Adam we lost paradise as well. Paradise lost. Now what does that have to do with the goal of salvation? A lot. A lot. Since the beginning of the story is about paradise lost, as we, as we think of stories, good stories, they, they start off with, with a problem, and then the story brings resolution to that problem. And so it makes sense that the conclusion of the great story of God is not only humanity saved, but also paradise redeemed. Paradise was lost, and so paradise would be redeemed. And why? Well, it makes sense, right, that God would draw human beings to himself again and restore his good creation, to restore the creation that in the beginning he exalted over and rejoiced over, saying it's very, very good. It makes sense that he would want to see that restored. He wouldn't want to abandon what he so loved and rejoiced in. Why would he want to throw it all away when he exclaimed over and over again, it is very good. So it makes more sense then that he would have the desire to restore creation back to its former glory and beyond it, right? Restored and renewed to a place that is better than Eden, 
which, if I remember correctly, was the title of a book that women were studying, right? So it's tied to that. And this is what the Bible teaches, that the totality, the entirety of salvation that Christ fulfilled and offers for humanity is to inhabit the good creation of God now renewed and restored, perfected. And this is the great goal of salvation according to the scriptures, is taking that lost paradise, restoring it, glorifying it, not abandoning it, not rejecting it, and all of this for the glory of God. And that is in part what Christ himself accomplished through his death and his resurrection. So the creation, the original creation was lost by the first Adam and his insurrection against the king of kings. But now all of creation has been redeemed by the last Adam and his resurrection from the dead. And by that bodily resurrection of Christ, he has ensured the renewal of all things because it is the very power that God used in the resurrection of Christ that he now promises to apply to all of creation, restoring it at last in the end, making all things new. And so I want us to see from the scriptures that Christ has reconciled all of creation, that that was part of his intention in his ministry here on earth. And also we want to see how this is important in our life as well. So we've already considered the beginning of the Bible. Now we can look at the very end of the Bible and how it finishes as a story. And we see that in Revelation 21, 1 through 3, where it says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. And what do we learn from that? We see that God did not simply get rid of the world of matter in order to make this kind of immaterial world a new home that is not materialistic in the sense, but rather he renewed it. And the Belgic says he will burn this old world in fire and flame in order to cleanse it. It doesn't say in order to discard with it, in order for it to be gone forevermore, but in order to cleanse it. The fire that is to come upon earth on the last day, of which Peter speaks about in his letter, is a purifying and cleansing fire. Uh, sort of like how forest fires sometimes pave the way for a kind of renewal of the forest itself. And so this, it's going to be a purifying, cleansing fire to pave the way for the new, uh, the new creation that Christ is bringing, the renewal. And that's why John says that from his throne, Jesus says, I make all things new. I will make all things new. And so we find that the final state of our Existence, the final state and dwelling place that we will enter into for all of eternity, well, it is the renewal of the first creation. It is the making new of what was lost and broken. And that is by the power of Christ, making all things new. And then John adds, I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, look, God's dwelling place is now among the people and he will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God. So where will the final state be? Is it a vision of souls floating up into an ethereal realm with God in heaven? No. On the contrary, we see that God himself is descending from heaven to make his abode with humanity in the renewed worlds. God himself descending to dwell again with humanity, renewed and restored creation. The good news here is not that because of 
Jesus' death, we can go to heaven with God. But rather, the gospel tells us something far greater, far better, far more ultimate, that because of Jesus' death and resurrection, God is coming to earth again with us, without destroying us by his holiness. Now, the final state will be similar to the blessing that Israel received when God descended to dwell with them in the tabernacle, in the temple, that his, his glory was among them, in their midst, like it was in the Garden of Eden. But instead of in the time of Israel, when it was just restricted to the temple, a small base among them, with all the borders, etc., keeping them protected from God's own holiness and presence among them, the final state in the new creation is the wholeness of God's glory and presence, covering, encompassing the entirety of creation, which is a fulfillment of Psalm 108. Be exalted, O God, above the heavens. Let your glory be over all the earth. That is the desire that we have, is that God's glory be over all the earth, not just the heavens, but over all the earth. His glory here again on the earth. And we've seen evidence from this, uh, of this theme New creation in the beginning and end of the story. Where where else do we find evidence in the scriptures of this new creation theme, this renewal tied to the resurrection of Christ? Well, there are a few different places in the Apostle Paul's letters that we'll look at. First, Colossians 1, 19 to 20, where Paul says this, For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, that is Christ, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. So from this, we learn that Christ's work on the cross accomplished something greater than only or simply peace between God and man and sinners. In fact, this is speaking about the reconciliation that God has accomplished with all things, it says. And so, of course, his reconciliation that he accomplished between God and sinners is central, but there's more to it. There's more to it. Paul affirms this other aspect as he says here that the Father was reconciling to himself all things to him through Christ. By the blood of Christ, not just sinners, but all things, he says. And then to emphasize that so that we don't pass over it, we don't miss it, he says thereafter, whether things on earth or things in heaven, to show us what he's speaking about. And we learn from this that his death on the cross does not only forgive us our sins, but he's also broken the curse of corruption over all things that God has created. And how is it that Jesus, the last Adam, has made peace in all of creation, bringing shalom again and the promise of it, that integrity, order, and beauty again back to God's created world? Well, through his obedience and suffering, Christ has reversed the damage done by the sin of the first Adam. We can think of it in this way that the sin of the first Adam kind of provoked this hurricane of chaos and destruction that has destroyed and corrupted all of God's good creation. And it goes about, in a sense, killing all and destroying all and corrupting all that God has made. And then Jesus enters the scene and willingly entered into this world and put himself into the eye of the storm, the eye of the hurricane. Why? In order to calm the winds and return all things back to a beautiful harmony of order and shalom again. And how? How does he do that? How did he accomplish that? Well, by absorbing into his own body on the cross the destructive force of sin itself and death. 
And so the hurricane of the curse fell upon him and he absorbed it all. He took it all in and calmed the storm of chaos, of the curse. As Paul says, he was made a curse for us in order to reconcile us with God, but also in order to give us an inheritance, an inheritance, the creation restored and renewed after the storm. And that's what Paul says in Galatians 3, 13 to 14. He says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hung on a tree. He redeemed us in order that the blessing given to Abraham might come to the Gentiles through Christ Jesus, so that by faith we might receive the promise of the Spirit. And what was the promise of the Spirit that was given to Abraham? It was the inheritance of the whole world. How do we know that? Romans 4.13, where Paul says, It was not through the law that Abraham and his offspring received the promise that he would be the heir of the whole world, but through the righteousness that comes by faith. And so Christ took on that curse, not only to destroy the curse and be done with the curse, but also to give us the inheritance that was promised to Abraham, the inheritance of the whole world that we receive now through Christ, the one who earned it and won it for us. Then we find in Romans 8 that Paul speaks even more clearly and directly about this inheritance that we have in Christ, the renewed creation. He says in Romans 8, 14, all those who are led by the Spirit of God are children of God. And according to Paul, the Spirit is guiding us towards this inheritance, this promised land, just as the Spirit, as we look back in the Old Testament, was guiding Israel along their path in the wilderness, guided them by the pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night, the Spirit is also leading us to our promised land. And as it says later in verse 17 in Romans 8, all those who are led by the Spirit are sons, and if they are sons, they are co-heirs, because sons are heirs. They have a right to inheritance. And heirs of what? What is our inheritance? Well, Paul tells us in Romans 8, 18 to 25, he defines what our inheritance is. He says, it is the glory that is to be revealed to us. And then he goes on to explain what that is using a metaphor of a mother in labor pains describing how the entire creation yearns for the revelation of God's children on the last day, their resurrection. What Paul calls in verse 23, the redemption of our bodies. So that's the primary point or primary aspect of our inheritance, the redemption of our bodies from the grave. Bodily resurrection, that is our hope. And then in verse 20 to 21, Paul says this, for the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it, in the hope that the creation itself, so not just our body, but the creation itself, will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and glory of the children of God. And so, with our resurrected bodies, where will our resurrected bodies live and dwell? Well, here. In the new creation, redeemed and restored, free now from the, its bondage to corruption. And so the Spirit is leading believers to their in, eternal inheritance, which will be, one, the redemption of our physical bodies, reunited to our souls, and two, dwelling in the creation, now freed from its corruption, freed from death and decay. And so Christ, through his own bodily resurrection, has secured for us the redemption of our bodies, on the last day, and also the renewal of all things, the renewal of God's good creation. This was not just the Apostle Paul's hope, 
This is the Christian hope. This is what Paul or what Peter says in his second letter in chapter 3, verse 13. He says, in keeping with the promise, we are looking forward to a new heaven and a new earth where righteousness dwells. This is the Christian hope that we have. There's more evidence of this, especially from the Gospel of John. And this is quite amazing and astonishing, the way that John uh, weaves this theme into his Gospel. Of course, he begins his Gospel saying, in the beginning, an obvious connection and echo back to Genesis 1.1, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, right? And John in that way is reaffirming the goodness of God's first creation by pointing out for us the beginning of the new creation that the Son, who is the Word, Christ, is making. And then chapter 5 of John, when Jesus heals a paralyzed man and says, until now my Father works and I also am working. Now, the implication there is that Jesus and his father are working in the same business, the same family business. What? Restoring all things that are broken because he had just healed a paralyzed man. And then throughout the gospel, John tells us seven signs that Jesus performed, seven works of his power of creating or recreating, restoring And scholars and theologians have observed there with those seven signs an outline of a week, seven days, right? To give a parallel with the work of creation in Genesis uh, 1 and 2. And so what John is showing us is that Jesus is following the example of his father who in the beginning worked for six days in order to create all things. And now here is Jesus in the Gospels recreating, restoring creation with these seven signs. And then in chapter 19, verse 5, when Pontius Pilate presents our Lord Jesus with a crown of thorns and says to the crowd, here is the man. He says, here is the man. John notes that this happened on Friday, which was the sixth day of the week. Sixth day. Not a coincidence that it happened on the sixth day. Why not? On which day of creation did God create the man, the first man? It was on the sixth day, the crown, the crown of his creation, humanity created on the sixth day. And here is Pontius Pilate presenting the man, the new head of a new humanity. And what happens later in this story, according to John, he was crucified on Friday and then he rested in the tomb the next day, the seventh day being the Sabbath, right? Again, not a coincidence. It's an echo of the first creation where it says that by the seventh day, God had finished all the work that he had been doing. And so on the seventh day, he rested from all his work. So here's the point. That after completing his work of redeeming broken creation in that sequence of seven signs at the end of his work week, so to speak, Jesus on the cross says, it is finished. My work is done. The Son of God had completed the work that he had been doing And in the tomb he rested on the seventh day from all the work of redemption that he had done. Just as the Father had rested from all the work of creation that he had done and rested on the Sabbath day. So Christ rested in the tomb on the Sabbath day. And John wants us to see that parallel. And then when we come to Sunday, after Jesus rises from the dead, his resurrection, he rises on the first day of the week. The first day of the new creation, now inaugurated, started by Christ with his completed work. And seeing him resurrected, there Mary thinks he is a gardener. Not a coincidence. Again, 
Because Jesus is the gardener, so to speak, of the new creation. He is the true Adam, the true man, now ready to extend the borders of the temple palace of God to the ends of the earth, expanding the kingdom of God and his glory to the ends of the earth as the true man, the true gardener, so to speak. And then to seal the whole, the whole deal, Jesus appears to his disciples on that same day and does something a bit strange. In John 20, 22, he says, Jesus breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. John is indicating here that Jesus is, was renewing humanity by the power of his resurrection. That now with the Holy Spirit, through the power of his resurrection, he's able to recreate humanity. Just as God in the beginning, in Genesis 2, 7, formed man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. That word in Hebrew, breath of life, is ruach, which is also spirit. And then man became a living being. So we see Jesus blowing the spirit of God into his disciples, giving them new life, making them new creatures in him, and sending them out on a mission to expand and extend his kingdom to the ends of the earth by preaching the gospel. And so we see that great theme of new creation based on the resurrection of Christ also uh, clearly there in John as well. Now briefly, at the close, why does this matter? How is this important for us? Well, it changes a lot, really. It teaches us that God has placed us right at the intersection of the old creation and the new creation. And he has filled us with his renewing spirit by the power of his resurrection at work within us. One author puts it this way. He says, now that we have a new heart, that we are new creatures, we can unite ourselves with Jesus and his new humanity in the commission to bring into being the new creation in the midst of the old we can suppose that everything that is done to fix things in this world will in some way be a seed for the new creation. We find that it's God's goal to renew his good creation. And so we shouldn't have this escapist perspective as if we're just going to escape this, this world filled with evil one day. It is true that we ourselves are not capable of turning this broken world into the world which is to come. The fullness of that new creation will only come when King Jesus returns. But, but the Christian mission that we have is to bring the signs of the new creation to the world around us today by preaching the gospel, administering the sacraments, and showing brotherly love to and for one another and doing works of justice and mercy and truth and beauty in this world. They are signposts to the reality of the new creation that Christ has secured and is bringing signaling to this present evil age that there is a world to come that Christ has won for us and celebrating the new creation with joy even as we mourn here the pains of the old creation. And we can think of it like this, that after the resurrection of Christ, when Jesus rose from the grave, God made kind of a new spring of renewing water now flowing in a desert. Picture that. This water of life is now given to the church. With such living water, the church should become an oasis of hope in the midst of a desert. The desert is a dry, uninhabitable place, a place where everything dies, a place of despair and pain. It's the world that we live in. What is an oasis? It's a green and fertile area where life thrives. It's a place of hope, a place of joy. And God himself predicted that he would do this. And this is what I was talking about with that hymn earlier. Um, in Isaiah, he, he predicted and said that he would renew his chosen people and his good creation. In Isaiah 44, 
verse 3 and 4, he says, For I will pour water on the thirsty land and streams on the dry ground. I will pour out my spirit on your offspring and my blessing on your descendants. They will spring up like grass in a meadow, like poplar trees by flowing streams. This was predicted by God in the Old Testament, that he would do this, that he would create this oasis of life and hope and new beginning in the midst of this world, which is a desert. And he's doing that today by the power of Christ's resurrection through the church. And our church itself here should be like that, an oasis in the desert of the city of Ontario and in the place of California, right? A place where we can come and find refuge and hope and life in the midst of this world of death and pain. We are to invite our neighbors to taste and see the goodness of this oasis that God has started by the power of Christ's resurrection. And we can also kind of carry those waters with us daily in our life, in our families, to our jobs, in our neighbors, wherever we live. By the Holy Spirit, we can take water from the oasis in Christ and kind of sprinkle it out in the world, in the desert, showing people the renewing power of Christ. And with such water... The Spirit of Christ will give the fruit of new creation in our life and also in the lives of others and the elect as he reaches them and pulls them in to the new creation, to the new humanity. And so in that way, we should be inspired by this to enter places in this world in our life that are broken by sin and death and leave them more ordered, more beautiful, more just. Why? As signposts of our King his victory, his resurrection, and the new creation that he has promised to bring. The world should see the effects of the new creation in our life, like the presence of flowers blooming in a desert place. And so, by conclusion, God does not call us to be escapists in this world, but rather pilgrims, seeking the, the, the renewal of this same world that we are dwelling in now. If God loved his good creation so much that he would send his son in order to redeem us and restore all of creation, then we too should love his good creation. We should represent God exercising stewardship over the rest of his creation. And renewed in Christ, the Father invites us now as part of the family of God to enter into the family business of restoring the creation, so to speak, bringing order to chaos and building a beautiful life by the Spirit of God and loving one another and in that way showing others the signposts of God's grace. And while we await his return in the fullness of his eternal kingdom, paradise redeemed and enlarged, I hope that our church can more and more become kind of an oasis springing up with new life and hope in the middle of this desert world because we have that firm promise based on the fact that Christ said it is finished. Even the new creation work is already finished by the atoning death of Christ and his resurrection. It is secured for us because of that firm promise that we will possess the new creation and the renewal of our own bodies inhabiting the beautiful new creation. But we ought to live in obedience and seek that God's glory would more and more be expanded and others be pulled in to that new creation, that new humanity by faith in Christ. May God... And his glory fill all the both now and forevermore. Amen. Let's close there. Father God, we thank you for Christ our King. And we recognize that his dominion over all things envelops the earth and rises beyond it to reach the furthest stars in the galaxy and in the universe. 
There's no corner of creation that you cannot redeem in the end. You will redeem all things. You are Lord of lords and King of kings. Oh, King Jesus, you are King of all and King of us. Fill us now with your spirit. Breathe new life into us. Make us new and let our lives point to your goodness and your, your greatness. May your resurrection life flow through us and blossom with love and hope and peace and kindness and gentleness and all the fruit of the Spirit. This we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.